For more presentations like this, visit www.xenos.org. All right, we're going to be looking at 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 9 through 20, which outlines God's design for sex, a topic that's a burning issue in our culture. Now, I think it's important for us to do a little bit of background study on Corinth. I think, first of all, um, we established in chapter 1 that immorality ran rampant throughout the city of Corinth. We know that uh, the worship of Aphrodite was really popular there. They had a, a large temple dedicated to Aphrodite. And the worship of Aphrodite actually included sleeping with ritual prostitutes. Parents would often take their young daughters, typically prepubescent daughters, and dedicate them to the temple at Af uh, of Aphrodite for a lifetime of service. And these young women uh, would have to undergo uh, ritual prostitution where, you know, men and women both would come to the temple to worship Aphrodite in the form of having sex. And so these women were often used and abused. Many of them had a very short lifespan because, um, you know, often they would get pregnant. And in order to continue their service, they would have to undergo a pretty savage abortion and continue their service. And so Corinth, I mean, really epitomized immorality in the ancient world. You know, Paul tells us in this chapter that some of the believers in Corinth were actually still sleeping around with these prostitutes. They would double as uh, regular prostitutes at night where they would, you know, walk around the city streets looking for customers, Johns. And apparently the Corinthian men were uh, purchasing their services. And so Paul was confronting them on this kind of behavior. He says in 6.16, in the form of a question, do you not know that anyone who is united with a prostitute is one in body with her? So this was a problem. I mean, even though these individuals in Corinth had come into a meaningful per, uh, relationship with God, many of them were still entrapped in this lifestyle of sexually immoral behavior. And you could say that they embraced their culture's view of duality. They looked at the world through the, the same lens that the Greeks did, where they saw a definite separation between one's mind or soul and their body. And so whatever you did with your body really had no bearing on your soul or your spirit. And apparently the Corinthians bought into this. We'll find out in 1 Corinthians 15 that they actually were denying Christ's bodily resurrection because they were afraid of what their culture would say um, about bodily resurrection. And so they believe that if you went out and you, you know, had sex with somebody, that that really had no bearing on you as a person. It didn't really impact you. And, you know, yet Paul makes the argument that it's, it's incredibly damaging and that from God's standpoint, it is a moral a um, a matter. 
Um, one of the arguments that they marshaled in uh, verse 13 is that food is for the stomach and the stomach is for food. But God will do away with both. In other words, you know, think about your stomach. Sometimes you get hungry. And so you got to go out and get a little snack, right? Feed that hunger. And so you can kind of see where that's going. You know, if God created certain other members of your body, why would he just create that and leave those unfulfilled? And so they were using this argument that God must have put this here some, for some reason, and he probably wants us to use it. You know, in the same way that you couldn't really distinguish the Corinthian people from the rest of their culture, either in practice or in their perspective. In the same way, you really can't distinguish modern American Christians from our culture's view or from our culture in the area of sexuality. In many ways, Christians seem to emulate, mimic our culture when it comes to sexuality. For example, Mark Regneris, um, he's a uh, professor, I think, of, at Texas, says um, over 90% of American adults experience sexual intercourse before marrying. The percentage of evangelicals who do, who do so is not much lower. He says in a nationally representative study of young adults, just under 80% of unmarried church-going conservative Protestants who are currently dating someone are having sex of some sort. So you would think that Christians would stand out in contrast to our culture when it comes to the area of sexuality, and yet the research seems to suggest that we look no different in many ways. And so Christians not only mimic our culture in practice, but also have adopted our culture's view of sexuality. I think it'd be worthwhile for us to look at some of the common things that our world says about sex, right? For example, some would say, you know, sexual release, it's just like a bodily function. After all, most people believe that human beings are just merely a bag of chemicals and, and molecules. We're just physical matter, nothing really more. And so what's the problem if I want to go out and just have casual sex with a bunch of different people? It's really a way of, you know, releasing a bodily function that I have, something that I need. You know, it's, it's no more different than if you're driving in the car and you get like kind of a nature call, right? You know how that is. When it happens, it comes suddenly. Your driving starts to get erratic. Uh, and so, you know, you speed up to get home. And finally, you know, when you get to your house, you know, you're stampeding up the stairs, you know, trying to get your trousers off in the middle of the hallway. And if you manage to make it to the bathroom, if you make it to the bathroom, you know, there's a sense of release. And so most people would view, you know, sexuality the same way, that it's just a bodily function. You know, you just, you have this urge and you need to satisfy it. It's sort of like getting that craving at 2 a.m. and going to the drive through window at Taco Bell. There's nothing wrong with that, right? <laughs> Secondly, people would say sex isn't really a matter of right or wrong. It's a matter of personal preference. You know, if somebody came up to you and said, 
what is the best flavor of ice cream? And you said, mint chocolate chip. <laughs> and they were like, you're wrong. It's Rocky Road, right? You'd be like, okay, it's just a matter of personal preference, right? I mean, that's like, that's like asking somebody what's the best color. I mean, it's subjective. It's what you want. It's what you desire, right? And so people have thrown sexuality in this, really in this category, that it's a matter of personal preference. Whether you think it's right, that's really up to you, whether you think it's right. And yet, I think we have to see that in our culture, you know, people have set up certain boundaries and have said, well, you know, certain things are wrong, you know, when it comes to sexual behavior. But most things, it's all right. And yet the question we have to ask ourselves is, you know, what basis do we have for making that judgment? You know, if sexuality is a matter of personal preference, then what if I desire something that happens to violate what you think is right? Or vice versa. And so really we put ourselves in a position when we make this kind of claim that it's just personal preference, really where we can't critique anything or anyone and their behavior. You know, some would say there's nothing wrong with having sex as long as it's consensual. As long as it's between two consenting parties, then what's the big deal? I mean, yeah, if you're into like some weird stuff, I mean, as long as both of you guys are into it, who cares? And yet, I think this whole idea of consensual sex, it's sort of arbitrary. Why, why should we say that that's what's important? Or what, wh why do we say that that's the line? You know, in the ancient world, in Corinth, what was consensual didn't really matter. I mean, the, these parents thought that they were actually doing the right thing by dedicating their young daughters, their preteen daughters, to the temple for a life of sexual abuse. Are we going to say that they're wrong? I mean, we could say that, but at the same time, we can't make the claim that sexuality is just a, a matter of personal preference. Because if it's personal preference, how are we then to take our morality and apply it to another culture or another time? That's hypocritical, right? The most that we can really say is, that displeases me that they did that. And yet, there's something in, within us that wants to say even more than that. Not to mention, this whole idea of what's consensual really is a blurry line. Did you know in the 1880s in America, the age of consent in most states was between, between 10 and 12 years old? With the exception of Delaware, which was seven years old? In other words, you could be a 50-year-old man and have sex with an 11-year-old, and that was perfectly fine in most states. And that, of course, changed in 1920, where the age of consent has risen to 16 to 18 years old. And yet, modern-day people have raised the question, why should, we, why should we make it 16 or 18 years old? That's sort of an arbitrary line. I mean, after all, when can people start making decisions for themselves? Good question. You know, in a recent case in L.A., a middle school teacher was caught sleeping with his, uh, one of his students who was uh, 14 years old, 
And one of the arguments that his defense made was that she purposely lied to her mother in order to go to a motel to have sex with her teacher. And the lawyer was arguing, so you're, you mean to tell me she had no she was coerced to do that? Sounds like she made a decision. And so you can see how this is, although it makes sense, at least from just an intuitive perspective, that there are some problems there that we have to consider. What about this? It's okay as long as you're practicing safe sex. You know, there's really no harm, no foul, as long as, you know, you're, you're um, you know, using some sort of contraceptive. Um, and yet, one of the things that the Bible argues is that it's not that easy. That anytime we veer off the path that God has marked out for sexuality, his design, that when we step outside of that, that actually creates damage. Um, and I think, you know, many of us have had experiences where we, we notice that there's something, I wouldn't say wrong, but, it, but things just don't seem right in some of the, the different things that we do. You know, I was watching um, a number of years ago, I saw this movie, Vanilla Sky. Have you ever seen that? Uh, it features, you know, this mogul, David Ames, played by Tom Cruise. And um, he is in this relationship with this woman named Julie, who's played by Cameron Diaz. And so, you know, at one point, he actually starts dating another woman. And his jilted partner baits him into the car and, a, and in a furious rage is yelling at him and screaming at him and, and intentionally crashes the car to kill both her and him. And I remember uh, one of the lines that she made, that she said that really stuck out to me was, you know, uh, when you have sex with somebody, uh, your body is making a promise whether you are or not. I think there's a lot of truth to that. You know, a lot of times we'll, we'll find ourselves in these situations where we've developed, you know, kind of a friends with benefits relationship with somebody, you know, we, we text them late at night. And the whole idea behind this is that we're supposed to kind of keep things sort of uh, platonic, you know, in the sense that we're not going to date. We're not seriously interested in one another. We're just kind of using each other's bodies. And yet, inevitably, in, in any of those arrangements, a lot of times, the, one, of the, one of the people uh, actually starts to develop feelings. And when the person, you know, on the, other end, on the other end doesn't reciprocate that, often there's this feeling of rejection. Why, why do we feel that way? Well, as it turns out, you know, the Bible says that God hardwired sexuality into every dimension of our being. Not only our physical, but our emotional and spiritual parts of our being. No wonder whenever we engage in, you know, sexuality, uh, we're not just touching a person's body. We're, we're engaging in really the most intimate form of connection that we can have with another human being. Well, another pe other people would say, well, the biblical view of sex is outdated. You know, this was written thousands of years ago. We're modern people. We're, we're more enlightened. And so, you know, this, this was written by ancient people. We shouldn't really listen to them. Um, 
And yet, when we look at what Paul argues, when he argues against immorality, he usually backs it up with universal, timeless truths. Um, for example, in uh, verse 16, he says, or do you not know that anyone who is united with a prostitute is one with her, uh, one in body with her? For it is said, the two shall become one flesh. Notice what he says in quotations there. The two will become one flesh. He's directly citing Genesis chapter 2, where God lays out his design for sexuality. And it's very clear that what God intended for sexuality was in the context of a committed monogamous relationship between a man and a woman. And so he lays that out as the design for sexuality. And he says anything that falls outside of that, if we deviate from that, God says that that's wrong. And I know that that's controversial in our culture today. People don't want to hear that. And yet, that's what God says. It's not just something he says is particular to a, a specific society or culture or a time. He says that this is the pattern for all human beings throughout all time. Now, in 1 Corinthians 6, you know, Paul starts to uh, launch into his argument against this immoral behavior that was going on among the Corinthians. And, you know, in a lot of churches that you visit, whenever this topic comes up of sexuality, one of the tactics that they often use is the fear threat motive. You know, if you do this, God is going to judge you. You know, he's going to condemn you if you fall outside of his pattern, if you commit this sin. Or what they'll do is they'll, they'll look at the Old Testament and say, you know, um, the old, you know, God says you shall not commit adultery. And so that's the basis for why or the motivation for why we should change. And so when you look at, you know, this passage right here, Paul, if he had an opportunity to reintroduce the law as a motivation for growth and change, if he had an opportunity to bring in fear threat as a motivation to get us to quit immorality, this would be a perfect opportunity right here. And yet, what does he say in verse 12? All things are lawful for me, but not everything is beneficial. All things are lawful. Okay, he says it twice. All things are lawful. Meaning, you know, because of God's forgiveness through Jesus Christ, we have been forgiven for all the things that we have done. And so God has cleared us of our guilt because of Christ's death. And so one of the benefits of that is that we're released from the law, the, old, the burden of the Old Testament law, not only for salvation, but also for our spiritual growth. And so he affirms that all things are lawful. I mean, yeah, you can, you can engage in sexually immoral behavior if you want as a believer, but he argues, not everything is beneficial. In other words, um, you know, when you engage in a lifestyle of immorality, it impacts you negatively. And so he gives us really three reasons to flee immorality. And he's going to lay it out. It's going to be, number one, that it has an addictive quality. Number two, 
it has a damaging quality. And number three, it's incongruent with our identity in Christ. So first of all, he, he points out its addictive quality. He says in verse 12, all things are lawful for me, but I will not be controlled by anything. You know, when you look at sexuality, a lot of times people view this as an outlet for relieving personal pain. You know, when you're sad, when you're feeling lonely, when you're feeling depressed, you know, there are a number of outlets that we use in order to sort of numb the pain that we feel, uh, whether that's, you know, overeating or maybe, you know, we, we watch pornography. But really, there's nothing quite as satisfying or pleasurable as a sexual encounter. And so some people actually turn to sex as a way to kind of relieve the loneliness and, and uh, depression that they feel, almost like they would a drug. This is what Woody Allen says. He says, sex without love is an empty experience, but as empty experiences go, it's definitely one of the best. <laughs> uh, he's, not, he's not wrong there. Uh, you know, sexual release is, is one of the most pleasurable things that you can experience. And so you could see why it can have that kind of addictive quality. You know, instead of feeling satisfied, we often feel an increasing sexual thirst. You know, as you continue to turn to sexuality or a sexual encounter to relieve that sense of loneliness and emptiness that you feel, that pattern of turning to that uh, actually does not satisfy our thirst. It actually creates even more thirst and desire. It's kind of like bad Chinese food. You know, you eat some, it satisfies you for a little bit, but then you're hungry, you're hungry a few hours later. That's kind of the way it is. Larry Crabb, a Christian psychologist and author, says it satisfies the body but leaves the real person empty and despairing. It offers pleasure for the body without meaning for the person. I think it's a great summary of uh, these casual sexual encounters that you see so often in our culture. Third, it leads to sexual addiction or sexually deviant behavior. And so, you know, as you, as you continually turn to immorality and sex, as a way to relieve your pain, uh, it drives you to want more, both in frequency and maybe something even more exotic. And so that's why you see people turning to all types of, um, you know, deviant sexual behavior or people who are sexually addicted because uh, they need to get more in order to get that same feeling of excitement that they got the first time they had sexual release. And so you can see why this would be a pattern that people fall into and find themselves trapped in. Again, Crabb says, the natural appetite for erotic pleasure has become a mad tyrant demanding fulfillment with no concern for either boundaries or consequences. It enslaves us. Secondly, it's damaging effects. You know, uh, the most obvious type of damaging effect would be, uh, you know, STDs and STIs that you might develop. And, you know, one of the things that Paul says is that we should flee immorality. He says all other sin that we commit is outside of the body, but the person who commits immorality sins against his own body. 
And so that's one of the main arguments that he makes for why we should avoid it. You know, another thing is the the misery of an immoral lifestyle where um, as we continue to engage in immorality, you know, there is this sense that as we jump from one partner to another, that um, there is this growing sense of insecurity that we feel, that we'll never be able to truly love people, Um, as we continue to use people, uh, that selfishness breeds anxiety within us and depression. Uh, And also we see that there are recent studies that actually suggest that there are strong correlations between anxiety and depression and casual sexual encounters. Melina Bersaman, who is a professor at the University of California, Sacramento, in her article, Risky Business, says, it's premature to conclude that casual sexual encounters pose no harmful psychological risk for young adults. College students who recently engage in uh, casual, sexual, or casual sex reported lower levels of self-esteem, life satisfaction, and happiness compared to those students who had not had casual sex in the past 30 days. She goes on to say, and they had higher levels of general anxiety, social anxiety, and depression compared to college students who had not had recent casual sex. Now, this isn't like a Christian, uh, you know, professor. Um, This is, you know, a secular article. She says, one study found that having sexual intercourse with somebody Uh, only once or having sexual intercourse with someone known for less than 24 hours was significantly associated with feelings of sexual regret. And she says, feelings of sexual regret and feelings of regret in general have been linked to poor psychological outcomes such as lower life satisfaction, loss of self-worth, depression. So, you know, here you have research that seems to suggest a strong correlation between uh, this feeling of depression and anxiety and these casual sexual encounters. Part of it is, you know, there is it, it, this behavior really is a, a behavior that you could say is selfish. It's all about me pleasing my body and using another person. And yet, whenever we engage in this kind of behavior, you know, although we are unable to see it right away, we're actually creating lots of damage in our lives. You know, this could lead to an inability to form successful marriages in the future. You know, as we jump from one partner to another, uh, we may not feel like there's anything that's really happening, and yet we're, we're, according to the Bible, damaging the sensitive spiritual fibers of our soul. And really, the the scars of our immoral behavior don't actually become visible until we try to form a long-lasting relationship in marriage, where there's this sense where I'm constantly comparing my spouse to the dozens of people that I've slept with and feeling dissatisfied with his or her performance, or that sinking feeling that every time I have sex with my spouse, that he or she is just using me, like the countless partners that I've had in the past. 
You know, even, even in the case where we have a long-term relationship where we're, we're sexually active with our partner, you know, one of the questions that often comes up is, well, why don't you just get married? And they're just like, that's just a piece of paper. And you're like, well, if it's just a piece of paper, then why don't you get it then? And like, well, I, you know, whatever. They try to make it this like anti-establishmentarian thing, like whatever, man. I don't need a piece of paper to show love. And yet, the truth is that we don't want to bind ourselves to a commitment like that because we want to have the choice to be able to discard our partner at any time because they're not performing to the level that we want or because we just simply don't love them anymore. You know, Pew Research uh, points out that even though people have grown cynical uh, toward the idea of marriage, most people actually desire it. Uh, in a recent poll that they did, they say that attitude toward the institution of marriage doesn't always match personal wishes about getting married. Asked whether they would get married, 40%, 47% of unmarried adults who agree that marriage is becoming obsolete say they would also like to wed. And so even though there's this growing cynicism that, you know, I'm not sure that I want to ever get married um, or that it's even possible to have a successful marriage, many of them have a desire for that. And, you know, I, I can understand why people feel cynical about marriage today. Uh, nearly 50% of uh, all marriages fail. And I think, you know, a lot of us have been devastated by divorce growing up in that environment. And so uh, it's understandable that we would feel this way, and yet God says that a successful marriage is not only possible, but God enables us to have a good marriage. You know, we experience broken relationships due to immorality, particularly damaging to children. Um, when you look at some of the studies that have been conducted on divorce. We have longitudinal studies that span like 30 or 40 years at this point. And the outcome of divorce among children, it's pretty shocking. There's a high correlation between depression, uh, lower satisfaction of uh, life, uh, lower income, juvenile delinquency connected with growing up in a broken home. And you know, some of us like I said, have grown up in this environment. We, you know, I don't need to quote statistics to you to know how damaging and how painful that is. Also, uh, it leads to an inability to express love sexually, where you know we have gone through this pattern of uh, selfish sexual exploit, and we get to a point where we have completely disconnected sexuality from, you know, its intended purpose of showing love. God has given us sexuality as a way to express love in a way um, that really he wants us to share with our lifelong partner. Also, it could lead to sexual dysfunction where, uh, you know, people have the inability to uh, feel a sense of satisfaction from sexuality because of their addiction. And so, 
you know, when you look at our culture's obsession with sex, it's not really a sign of freedom or sexual liberation. It's really a sign of complete poverty and degradation of God's intended design. You know, sex to most people becomes this meaningless thing where you just reduce your partner to this subhuman object of your pleasure. Where we just, we look at them as this pornographic silhouette of, an, of something that can fulfill our sexual desires without complaint. And so that's what happens when we have given ourselves over to this, this way of life. It distorts our view of sex and what God intended. Thirdly, it's incong- incongruous with our identity in Christ. In uh, verses 19 and 20, Paul says, do you not know that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have from God, and that you are not your own? For you were bought at a price, therefore glorify God with your body. And so one of the things that happens the moment that we receive Christ, where we ask God for the forgiveness that he offers through Jesus Christ, God says that he actually makes his dwelling within us, in our bodies. And so he's saying... You know, if God's presence really uh, is your body, you embody his presence here on earth, then by engaging in sexual immorality, you're defiling God's temple. Also, he says in verses 15 through 17, don't you know that your bodies are members of, of Christ? Should I then take the members of Christ and make them members of a prostitute? Never. Or don't you know that anyone who's united with a prostitute is one with her? For it is said, the two shall become one flesh. But the one united with the Lord is one spirit with him. So it's not just about us defiling ourselves and our body. It's also about defiling God's spiritual community that we are mystically linked to one another because of our relationship with Christ. And so when we engage in sexual immorality, it's, it doesn't just impact us, it impacts the people around us as well. And as we talked a couple weeks ago about the damaging effects of turning a blind eye to, to grievous moral wrongdoing, you know, to simply turn a blind eye to sexual immorality really creates that hypocritical atmosphere that we're so critical of that we see in the church. And then earlier in verses 9 through 11, he says, Do not be deceived, the sexually immoral, idolaters, adulterers, passive homosexual partners, practicing homosexuals, thieves, greedy, drunkards, the verbally abusive, and swindlers will not inherit the kingdom of God. Such were some of you, and you lived this way. But you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ by the Spirit of our God. It's not really popular to say those sorts of things, is it, in our culture today, to say that, you know, homosexuality is wrong. And yet, um, we're not making the claim that, that we know better. We're simply saying this is what God says. And, you know, what he, what he points out here is uh, that because of our new identity, God says that, we start to live in a way that is um, really in line with our new identity as we grow with him. And that's something that we should see. 
Now, first of all, when we look at this passage, I think it's important for us to note that God isn't taking exception of homosexuality. If you look at that list, it includes heterosexual immorality, right? He says adultery or sexual immorality. And so he's not saying, you know, it's especially bad when you commit acts of homosexual behavior. Uh, he's saying that anything that falls outside of God's design, that is uh, a monogamous committed relationship in marriage between a man and a woman, anything that falls outside of that, according to God, is wrong. And secondly, Paul expects God to transform both our thinking and our behaviors in these areas. You know, he says, such were some of you. In other words, because of your new identity, God not only transforms your thinking, but then also conforms your behavior to fit with that. And so he, he says that, you know, these areas should change in our lives, that he, we should gain freedom from sexual immorality over time. And, you know, I think it's kind of hard for us to wrap our mind around how our identity impacts us. But, you know, think about it this way. Some, some of the you know, individuals in this room are probably Browns fans, right? feel sorry for you. Um, but, you know, when, whenever you get around a Browns fan, you can, you can usually tell right away. You know, they are always talking, they're always criticizing the management. They're always talking about how next season is going to be really great. You know, you periodically see them crying. And so, you know, they are, in a way, pathetic people who are drawn to a life of sadness, right? And so when you see a Browns fan, you know, um, really, it's easy to identify. They, 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 can't really, they can't really help it. You know, they're, usually they grow up in it. They, their parents rooted for the Browns. And so they feel like, I can't change that. It's just a part of who I am, right? And so imagine if you, you saw a Browns fan uh, one day rooting for the Steelers, right? Yeah. You'd be like, okay, you could do that if you want, but why? right? That's just not fitting with your identity as a Browns fan. You should be rooting for a losing team, right? <laughs> and so, you know, in the same way, God has given us this new identity, and over time, he, he, he calls on us to live in a way that is congruent with that, that it starts to change the way that we live, the way that we act, the way that we think, all right, let's see if we can summarize some of these points. I think, first of all, God doesn't place boundaries on sexuality because he's anti-pleasure, okay? God is actually the one who created sexuality. You know, it's not like when he was, uh, you know, standing there in the garden and he saw Adam and Eve, you know, starting to get it on for the first time. He wasn't like, wait, what, do you, what are you guys doing? <laughs> Why, why are you guys wrestling? This is what? I mean, he, he knew exactly what they were doing, and he, he created sex to be pleasurable. And so the reason why God places boundaries on sexuality is because he knows that, 
you know, it's so pleasurable that if we start to, to veer outside of those boundaries, that it can have really damaging effects on us. And he knows that the context in which we will enjoy sexuality will be within the confines of his design. That is, in marriage. So God's not anti-pleasure. In fact, you know, if you ever read the Song of Solomon, uh, there's some really racy uh, lines in there. Um, anyway. <laughs> also, it turns out that uh, when you live uh, the way God designs you, when it comes to sexuality, it actually works. You know, you would think that uh, married sex is lame. Um, you'd be wrong. Uh, research actually suggests that uh, married people have more sex and feel more satisfied. Uh, this is from uh, a source here by uh, Linda Waite. She says, married people have, have both more and better sex than singles do. They not only have sex more often, but they enjoy it more, both physically and emotionally, than they do their unmarried counterparts. 43% of the married men reported that they had sex at least twice a week. Only 26% of single men not cohabitating said that they, would have, uh, they had sex this often. And 39% of married women had sex two or three times a week or more compared to 20% of single women. So why is that? Well, as it turns out, you know, when we listen to what God says and, and fulfill our design, that we actually get to maximize sexual pleasure. And finally, you know, God can, can provide healing to the damage that we brought upon ourselves. And some of you are coming in uh, to a relationship with God with tons of baggage. Um, you know, a lot of these sexual experiences seem branded in our minds. And yet, over time, God can provide healing and also give you the opportunity to have a successful marriage relationship. I know that seems really far out to some of us, but if you stick around next week, uh, we're going to talk about what marriage looks like and try to paint a positive vision for, it, for you. All right, why don't we uh, just uh, spend our remaining time here uh, with the Lord. Yeah, thanks to you, uh, provide a countercultural alternative uh, to our culture's uh, view of sexuality. Um, I often uh, look at our culture and think that, you know, if, um, you know, our sexual freedom was meant to give us satisfaction, I just, it, it uh, doesn't make sense to me why people are driven crazy by their sexual desire. And um, thanks that you give us an outlet um, for enjoying sexuality that's, that's not only going to be satisfying, but also one that is, a, is um, relational and that uh, connects us to other people. And um, I pray that, you know, if we don't agree on this, that uh, we would at least have the openness to at least uh, think about what you have to say here. And um, we pray that uh, you would transform our thinking to conform it to uh, what you say in your word. Pray that in Jesus' name. Amen. This study was recorded at Zenos Christian Fellowship and is copyrighted. You may freely copy and distribute it as long as you keep it intact and do not sell it.